0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am really grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and philosophy and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of really interesting, accomplished people of goodwill in good faith. It is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Now, remember, I've said this before, I just can't say it enough. If you could take the time to leave a review on whichever podcast app you're on, it really does help. Certain apps only allow for ratings. That's awesome, five stars if you would. Um, But others give the option of writing a review and that does help in terms of um, of our rankings so that other people can discover the program. And then I always love it if you would tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your neighbor, tell your friend from church, whoever. Just tell somebody about an episode you heard and how wrong you think I am or how crazy this all sounds, just tell them. Uh, and then maybe you'll end up getting into a conversation about politics and religion. Hopefully you won't kill each, kill each other in the spirit of this program. Um, the easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us, or feel free to connect with me on all the socials, even threads. I'm at Corey S. Nathan, at C-O-R-E-Y-S and Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversations just like the one we're having today with Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk is Associate Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University, founder of Persuasion, an online magazine devoted to defending the values of free societies. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the host of of a really good podcast, I've been binging it lately, The Good Fight, and he is also the author, most recently, of The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, which we'll be ta- discussing at great length today. Yasha, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm great. I look forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Now, I have to start with a really, uh, with a really profound, deep, nuanced question. Uh, and that is, is a hot dog a sandwich? And why is that an important question?
0: <laughs> I, I I refuse to answer this question because I know that I would endear myself to half of your audience, but half of your audience might go on to hate me. Um, uh, it is a profound question for surprising reasons. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's this great researcher who was uh, really haunted by the Holocaust and was trying to understand, you know, why is it that when people are members of these groups, they can do these terrible things to each other? What is it about groups but makes us often willing to treat the in-group with great courage and altruism, but also can inspire terrible cruelty or violence towards the out-group. And he said, okay, let me start in the following way. I'm gonna create groups that are so dumb and so pointless and so arbitrary that people don't have that kind of in-group favoritism. Uh, and then I'll slowly sort of ladle on more attributes to those groups until I get to the thing that makes people behave in that way. And that'll help us understand the world. And he failed completely because even the silliest groups that he created, for example, by asking people whether they prefer the paintings of uh, Klee or Kandinsky, um, made people uh, favor the in-group over the out-group. And so I use this, one of my students, sometimes I have them debate, you know, it's an intro politics class or something like that. And, um, you know, I have them debate whether a uh, hot dog is a sandwich for a little while and they sort of think I'm being weird, like fine, we'll debate this and we get into it. I'm mean, going to have them play the simple distribution game. And it turns out that the people who believe that a hot dog is a sandwich would rather take home less money themselves, as long as the people who believe that it isn't a sandwich take home even less money because they come to care about the group winning out so much, even about a silly question like that
1: yeah yeah you describe it as a certain type of groupishness i think is the word that you've you've used and uh, do you think that's evolutionary or is it something that is unique to our time and uh, our culture or, or is it this this has been a
0: problem since uh time immemorial i think the basic instinct of groupishness is uh, built into humans um whether it has evolutionary reasons or different kinds of reasons you can debate but uh Uh, We can see it in so many different contexts that it's really, really easy to trigger that in-group mechanism um, to make people feel like they're part of a group. And then once they do, it has these immense consequences for how they treat people. Now, the one part of this that is less depressing, the one part of it that's potentially inspiring is the thing that determines which group you're a part of is really, really variable. Right? So uh, uh, one way we might think about it in the United States today because of the census categories and other things is by race, right? But the fundamental division of American society is whites and uh, Latinos and Asian Americans and African Americans, um, or perhaps just whites versus people of color, right? In other kind of contexts, you might think of it religiously, right? The real distinction is between Catholics and Protestants and Jews and Muslims, or perhaps all kinds of different denominations within Protestantism, Right? The real division in society is between nations, is between this country and that country and that country. You know, for a whole centuries of European history, but I still haven't understood the fundamental division between Gelfs and Ghibellines, and I still haven't really understood what a Gelf is and what a Ghibelline is, right? Um, so actually, we can think about how do we create identities that make it easier for us to collaborate, to to work together, and that in a way has to do with my with my new book about. About the identity trap, because I think we've embraced a set of ideas recently that'll draw boundaries between people uh, in ways often based on race. That'll make it harder rather than easier for them to overcome prejudices and and collaborate. Even when a lot of the things we're doing to encourage people to draw lines in that way are well intentioned, are uh, you know hoping to make the world a better place. I think it it ends up creating such a Uh, premium on these forms of ethnic identity and and creating so much zero-sum competition between different groups that it's not going to end well for our society unless we manage to to get out of that trap
1: yeah you know you you uh, toward the beginning of the book and then you deal with it more extensively in the appendix uh this ties into something about your background you said at first gradually and then suddenly the center of gravity on the left swung from class and economics to culture and identity and I wanted to tie that into a question I had about your background. You said that all four of your grandparents were arrested for being communists in Europe in the 20s and 30s, but by the 80s and 90s, when you were growing up, you said that their politics had evolved. So I was curious if you could share a little bit more about your own family's background, and then also if you would, um, if you see parallels in the political movements your grandparents are skewed, at, and what's happening on the left today does that make sense what I'm asking
0: yeah yeah that makes sense that's interesting so my grandparents uh you know are uh, Jewish were born in Stettels in what today would be Ukraine what at the time would have mostly been the Austro-Hungarian Empire um they experienced discrimination um very strongly in their youth and they were poor and so they were drawn to this ideology that claimed to be universalist, but claimed to ensure that all people were treated the same and that working people would um, enjoy a lot more of the fruits of the earth. And I can sort of understand why those ideals would have felt and looked appealing uh, at the time. Um, they ended up uh, being communist activists in the, in the late 1920s and in the 1930s, going to prison. and. In Polish cities in, in the 1930s, surviving the Holocaust by going east to the Soviet Union and, and surviving it there, and then helping to build up the communist regime in, in the 50s and 60s in, in Poland. Um, of course, ironically, uh, not only did they uh, uh, face the Holocaust and lost a lot of their families to 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 that ideology, but in 1968. Um, the the communist government of Poland um, went on this huge state-sponsored anti-Semitic campaign. There was about 50,000 Jews left in 1967 in Poland. And after three years, there was 500 left. The rest of them had been pushed out of a country, thrown out of a country in those two or three years. And so um, their experiences, uh, uh, you know, I think have shaped me in the sense that I still retain some kind of sympathy for the universalism of the youth, for this idea that how we treat each other shouldn't be shaped by the uh, ethnic groups you're from and an understanding. But of course, discrimination exists and and is something we have to take seriously. But in history, people have often been treated in the most horrible ways based on their ethnicity. And 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 we need to preserve the kinds of tolerant societies that are going to avoid those, those, those terrible tragedies um uh so even if I you know uh, certainly don't share their uh, uh, uh you know long time uh, uh sympathy for communism um even uh, uh if, if if I think that those ideals led to a perdition in the Soviet Union and elsewhere um I think something about that aspiration is important and and what's interesting today is that that is no longer what the left stands for That where the left stood for those forms of universalism, it has now quite deeply embraced the form of particularism. It doesn't want to create a society where how we treat each other is less dependent on the kind of identity group of which we're part. It is celebrating a culture and wanting to create a society in which how we treat each other and even how the state treats all of us is fundamentally dependent on whether you're uh, part of this or that or that ethnic group, part of this or that or that religious group part of this or that that sexual orientation or gender identity
1: you know what you're describing it, it does it is noteworthy that you embrace you you recognize some of these proclivities in the modern left while still embracing uh, what you describe at length is, as liberalism, some some values of, of classical, I, I i don't know if that's the right way to think of it, but classical liberalism, for example, free speech and free association, despite the fact that in your youth, you, you describe one um, experience you had in Germany, uh, I think you were in your, your teens at the time, and there were 10,000 protesters that you saw just outside of your window uh, in, in Munich to oppose the, um, I think it was the exhibition uh, 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 uh there was an exhibition about Germany's war crimes from World War II as a as a young uh Jewish uh boy uh seeing this kind of uh protest thousands and thousands of people um one would think that you might be more inclined to embrace uh no no I don't want that kind of free assembly and yet you do free speech and free assembly uh it so am I reading that right or <laughs> or
0: um no, you are. Um and look, um uh you know, in the middle of the nineteenth century there was plenty of terrible racist speech in the United States, uh, of forms that today we we you know, even today in the sewer of, of Twitter we would be shocked by. And yet Frederick Douglass uh called free speech the dread of tyrants. Mm. Uh he was aware that free speech allowed slavers in the American South to justify the system and to denigrate African-Americans and enslaved people. But he also recognized that it was the one thing that allowed people in the country to criticize the powerful, to argue against slavery, to argue for immediate emancipation. And so, uh, you know, the, the core insight has always been that free speech actually, by definition, is as much or more so, a tool of a powerless and of a powerful. You know, if we allow censorship, uh, let's talk about formal censorship first, but it's true of informal forms of censorship as well. Who's going to be the censor? Well, if it's a government censor, it's somebody who has some kind of office in Washington DC. If it's the way we've effectively done censorship now, which is uh, you know by private social networks censoring uh, what people are saying, it's some kind of tech executive in Silicon Valley. Those people aren't powerless. By definition, the kind of person who's sitting in the census office in D.C., who's sitting in that office in in Silicon Valley, is a powerful person. Um, and so, I actually think uh, uh, there's a natural way in which we argument for free speech should be a a, a left wing and a right wing value. Um, mm-hmm. but, but the left has good reason to 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 defend and embrace that value. And uh, it's been shocking to me how easily big parts of the American left have have given up on that value. And I think it really comes from a kind of naivety about the world. I think it, it it's because a lot of those ideas originated on college campuses. And in those contexts, you know, who's going to make the speech code about what he can say or can't say at Smith College or at Harvard University? Well, because those institutions are so left-leaning, it's going to be somebody who's pretty far left wing. And so you can assume that um, people are always going to uh, enshrine progressive ideas and outlaw non-progressive ideas. Um, but that's not what would happen if you actually have an all-out fight over what can and can't be said in a society in which a lot of the powerful are not that progressive. So I think it's it's it's, it's strategically, it's not just normatively wrong um, for the left, it's also strategically naive. Yeah. You
1: know, I was curious, You, you part of the book you describe how this has... How this has evolved from the academy, the ivory tower, if you will, to um, an early form uh, of of this this type of engagement online, Tumblr, you describe, and other platforms of social media, um, and it's you've been concerned about it for for quite some time. I was curious: have you received any pushback as you voiced these concerns, especially with this latest book, um, from? others uh that that are on the left in the academy or uh, say you had uh you had some you spent some time at the new america foundation any of your former colleagues there have you received any sort of uh pushback and if so what's it been like
0: um well the, the 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 book uh is is just about to be published so we'll see what the reactions to it are going to be it's a little bit early to tell um I've, I've certainly had strong forms of pushback, which is fine, um, right? I mean, uh, uh, public criticism is different from, uh, is is different from actually uh, advocating for people to get fired or anything like that. Um, it can be hurtful, especially if people who you knew well in graduate school, for example, and you know used to have lunch with, and they kept asking you for advice on their writing because they clearly thought you were smart when posts in social media that you must be a complete idiot because you <laughs> happen to you know express a view that they disagree with. Um, But that's fine, that's a prerogative. I don't think that's part of cancel culture exactly. Um, So I've been uh, lucky in not having had any kind of organized attempts to get me fired or deplatformed or something like that. Um, What I have experienced is that in the classroom, for example, students are sometimes very cautious about what they say and that they often tell me in private and office hours and so on, that they're worried about bringing the whole selves to the classroom and actually speaking out. Um, because of some of the classmates that might try to go around maligning them or impugning their reputations, and these are people with very reasonable views. These are not in any way uh, students who are who are who are extremists. At the same time, you know, I, I also teach many of these questions in the classroom, and I, uh, you know, and and most of the students are very open to that. We're very grateful to be able to actually talk about those ideas and to encounter many of those ideas uh for the first time especially criticisms of the kinds of things we have at this point been spoon-fed since first grade um so I don't want to be catastrophist about it but the, the, the 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 sort of the fear that people have to speak up about those ideas and the unjust firings and 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 the platformings and cancellations that have happened are a real cultural problem but the deeper problem. Is the contestation over what kind of assumptions should drive our society? How are we going to be teaching kids? What kind of public policies should we implement? Right. Um, and so I think it's the it's, you know, despite all of the worries that, that I have about speaking out about this and that many of the listeners may have, I think it's the duty of every citizen to try and actually argue for the values. And that's sometimes uncomfortable. Um, uh, if you're a little bit concerned about upsetting some people, I have some strategies in the book about how to do that in a truthful and forthright way. Um, but I think it's possible to do that, uh, uh, you know, without risking your job.
1: Yeah, I love. There's something very uh, toward the end of the book. I I made a big note. This is the whole ballgame. It's the six pieces of advice for arguing and organizing against the identity trap. And I I want to um, I want to deal with that uh, in, in a second. But first, I, I want to um, I want to contextualize this a bit for folks. So we understand our terms, you know, it over the last say 10 years or five years ago, there were popular uh, terms to describe the subjects that you're dealing with, whether it's identity politics or cancel culture being woke, but you use identity synthesis. So if you would, could you tell us what, what you mean by identity synthesis, as well as, uh, as you deal with in the book, what is the lore and what is the trap?
0: Yeah, perfect. So um, look, uh, I don't ultimately care what people, what term people use. And I think all any of those terms are kind of fine. Um, it, it's a weird thing because a lot of ideologies uh, that are structuring our society, we have names for that are agreed upon by people who believe in those ideas and by people who don't believe in those ideas, right? As people say, I'm a socialist, People say, I really think socialism is dangerous. As people who are liberals and people who blame Liberals like me for everything, terrible philosophical <laughs> liberals. There's you know conservatives and 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 again like all of those terms, people who share those ideologies and people who don't share those ideologies. They they they, they agree on what to call those ideologies. And the problem with a set of ideas that whose origin I'm cr- chronicling in this book and and explaining how they became so powerful and then critiquing in terms of the applications. There's not a term that its uh, defenders and its detractors. Can agree on so you know the word woke originated as a self-description. I'm I'm woke. I've understood the nature of the world, right? Now it's, uh, it's mostly a negative description. Right? Oh, that idea is woke, or that person is woke, and you know you sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds when he goes, oh, "Those woke <laughs> people, right? You know, um, those wokies, you know." Um, and so I just, for the purposes of writing this book, which 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 is a critique, but but is a serious one, non polemical one, I wanted a, a term. But sort of boring enough that nobody is going to get up the the their, 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 their blood pressure by hearing it. right? And so I, shed, I settled on the identity synthesis because fundamentally what we're talking about is a set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation, about these forms of group identity and how they should shape uh, our society. Um, and it is a synthesis, as I show in the part that chronicles the intellectual history of these ideas of uh, thinkers like Michel Foucault and Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and uh, Derek Bell and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw of uh, traditions of postmodernism and post-colonialism and critical race theory. And so it's, it's a synthesis of these, uh, a summary a kind of merging of these different ideological uh, and intellectual traditions. So that's why it's the identity synthesis. Now, that's a neutral term, but the book is called The Identity Trap. Right. Uh, and it's called the identity trap because I think uh that the people who are attracted to these ideas are often well-intentioned. They think that these ideas are the most courageous, uh uh radical, uh uh you know, uncompromising way to fight against discrimination and racism and sexism and all these terrible things that really exist. Um, but ultimately they will fail to make A better society by pursuing those ideas. They'll fail to make a better society because it's a political trap. Um, If you, for example, take kids at the age of six or seven or eight years old and split them up into different identity groups on the basis of a race, say the black kids go over there, and the Latino kids go over there, and the Asian American kids go over there, and by the way, the white kids go over there, as now happens in many elementary schools, especially in private elite high schools around the country, you're not creating more anti-racist activists, you're creating uh, more racist. Uh, you're creating more zero sum competition between ethnic groups. You're making it harder for our society to hold together. And the most extreme forms of uh, right wing populism and these forms of left wing identitarianism might superficially be in conflict with each other, but fundamentally they help each other. Trump's victory made it easier for these ideas to take hold in mainstream and left leaning institutions. And the hold these ideas have will make it easier for Trump to get elected in 2024. So one is the yin to the other's yang. So that's a political trap. And that's also a personal trap, which is that what this set of ideas basically promises is that if you really want belonging and meaning in your life and in society, if you want some form of social recognition, what you should do is to lean into the groups to which you belong. So you're really deep down defined by being a man or a woman, by being uh, brown or white, by being uh, uh, you know, queer or, or or straight, but the particular intersection of identities you have is really going to express who you are, and then allow society to give you that form of recognition. But that I think is wrong, because what actually uh, defines us much more deeply is who we are as people. Whether we're moral, immoral, whether we have a good sense of humor or uh, a bad one, whether um, you know we show up for our friends or or we don't, uh, the kind of idiosyncratic tastes we have, uh, the thing that makes us, us, that makes us different from our siblings or uh or other people in our family who might share our intersection of identities, but who are going to be pretty different from us. And so I think it's a personal trap because it promises people that form of recognition and respect that you're never going to get just on the basis of a particular groups you're born into, that always will need to have to do a decent part with who you actually are as a person.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot a lot of my own response to your work, to the to what I was reading in the book, comports with my own experience over these last especially these last three years is that I found myself in situations where there were albeit a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned folks that were trying to do good work, um, but that I was being put in a bucket based on certain data points whether it was the shade of my hair, the shade of my skin. And then my entire humanity was distilled based on this one or two data points. Um, but I would ask you, what, what would you say to someone who objects to, to this, uh, to, to to your work now and says, what what about the injustices that are still shaping America? You know, there's there's an urgency in fighting the dangers of right-wing authoritarianism. So why why address as you call it the identity trap?
0: Yeah. So look, I I, I like to say that I'm a, a, a democracy crisis hipster. I, I <laughs> worry about the about the threats to democracy before it was cool, right? I say we make um, that a bumper sticker: the
1: identity crisis, <laughs> the, the hipster, the, the democracy crisis hipster. <laughs>
0: um, you know, I, I earned it. I you know I, I bought the first album. You know. Um, <laughs> Good. The you know, I was a graduate student when I started to really worry about the state of, of, of our democratic institutions and the threat of populists from the left, like 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 Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, but, but mostly from the right. Um, this is before Donald Trump had ended politics, but yeah. in the form of people like Jörg Haider in Austria and Marine uh, and, and Jean Marie Le Pen and then Marine Le Pen in France and uh Recep Erdogan in Turkey and so on, right? Um, and and that was very key to my uh to my ideas i read a book called people versus democracy um why our freedom is in danger and how to save it um uh, but in that book i already started to talk talk a little bit about uh why it's a mistake for the left to give up on free speech for example right about the fact that we actually need to be able to have a hopeful vision of a kind of society where we want to create in order to be able to beat those dangerous populists at the ballot box but if people are going to have a choice between somebody who says the future is awful and blames everybody else, or somebody who says the future is awful and blames them. We're going to go for the person who blames somebody else. Um, and so now, in my latest work, um, I'm I'm really trying to understand these ideas on the left, and I'm trying to show the ways in which they are actually a political gift to the populist right. In which they're inflaming social tensions, in which they make it harder for institutions to function well, in which they uh, push a lot of our politicians out of the cultural mainstream that they need to be in in order to win against those dangerous forces on the far right. But I also continue to have the same commitment to rejecting uh, those populist politicians uh, on the right. Um, and, you know, I, I just, um, as we're recording this conversation a few days ago, published an article about the upcoming uh, Polish election in the Atlantic, where I really worry about the present government, which is attacking democratic institutions. So, um, you know, you can do two things at the same time. You can walk and chew gum. But more importantly, these two things are related. In order to beat back uh, these authoritarian populists, in order to build a broad democratic majority for an inclusive country that treats people fairly, we actually need to have a vision of society that takes problems and injustices seriously but is is capable of pointing towards a better future. And then there's a there's a, there's a second part of this question which is well, um, how should we think about our present society? Mm. Um, and, and here there's just a fundamental division that really is the heart of a disagreement over the identity trap, right? So uh, one narrative, which is the narrative of the advocates of the identity trap is to say, look, America has these nice ideals in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, but those were always hypocritical. The point of those was always to pull the wool over people's eyes. They actually had the function of perpetuating racial discrimination and so on. And so rather than trying to live up to those ideals, what we should do is to rip them up and to create a society in which how you're treated and how we treat each other depends on these groups in which we're born. You don't try to actually integrate schools and make sure that people have these friends across racial groups and really come to know each other, you say, no, no, no. we're going to put these kids over there and those kids over there and those kids over there. Uh, and that's true at, at every level of public policy in our institutions and lots of different contexts. You don't say, hey, the great thing about college is that you know, in the first year, you might have to be have a roommate who comes from a completely different world and you're going to end up being friends. And 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 we're going to force you to have a social interaction, which happened for decades. Say no, we're going to build as 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 many of these schools in the United States now do, racially segregated dorms in which uh, people from minority groups uh, uh, can choose to, but 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 end up being separate from from the white classmates, right? Or you can argue back against that and say, in the proudest uh, tradition in American political thought, which extends from Frederick Douglass via. Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King and and, and and I would argue something like Barack Obama. Uh, no, of course, we recognize that these ideals uh, were hypocritical at the time, that we did not live up to them. Uh, say as Frederick Douglass did on the 4th of July, that, uh, you know, how can my compatriots be celebrating these ideals while the slavery persists? But they did not want to rip up those principles. They said, no. So therefore, if you're serious about the 4th of July... Fight for emancipation. Fight for the equal treatment of African-Americans. Fight for actual inclusion. If you want to be part of those ideals, you've got to make sure that you actually live up to them. That's why Frederick Douglass called free speech the dread of tyrants and insisted that we live up to the Constitution. Um, That's why Martin Luther King said that um, the check that African-Americans had been written by the Bank of Justice was fraudulent, but he didn't want to uh, uh, rip up the check. He demanded that the Bank of Justice cash and honor that check. Um, and that is the fundamental disagreement that we're talking about. Um, so I think we can recognize that American history has been deeply unjust, and we can recognize that are some injustices that persist. Um, but we can also say, hey, what's allowed us to make progress, what has inspired the most consequential figures in American history fighting for that equality, is a determination to live up to those principles, not the cynical decision to rip them up and create a society where we'll forever be defined by the groups into which we're born.
1: (laughs) You know, you have this gritty, dogged optimism that I really admire, uh, but cannot understand sometimes. Um, so you reminded me of, um, as you're describing this, uh, it, 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 you're, you're so right that in the heat of battle, uh, what I've come to think of as oppositional politics, we can sometimes lose sight of our core principles. Uh, so one of the um, one of the accounts in the book, you reminded me of Nationalist National Socialist Party of America versus Village of Skokie, and I forgot that it was ACLU that represented Nationalist uh, the, the Socialist Party of America. Um so it remind us what were the principles that guided the ACLU's decision to defend the right of neo-Nazis marching in the town of Skokie.
0: Yeah and so the, the town of Skokie was important in particular because a lot of Holocaust survivors lived in that town. Right. Um, so it was a heavily Jewish town with with a, with a number of Holocaust survivors who were present and this kind of uh, you know pretty marginal nutcase uh, neo-Nazi party. Um, decided as a maximum form of provocation to march through that town. Um, and the ACLU, uh, which has always been, you know, quite a strongly Jewish organization, um, founded among others, I believe, by a Jew and and who's had lit- litigated at the time was Jewish, decided right, right. To, to defend the Nazi party, not because they had any kind of uh, sympathy for their ideas, Um but because as, 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 as this lawyer recognized, he said, if I don't stand up for the right of people to speak who I dislike, I'm also going to be undermining the right of the people I do like to speak. If courts can shut down a Nazi party because they don't like it, they can also shut down a uh, radical black activist, for example. So either we honor the principle of free speech on a neutral basis, or it just becomes a test of political power where whoever happens to have a leave of power at the time can decide what is acceptable speech and what is unacceptable speech. And so if you want to defend the powerless, you need free speech. It goes back to this point that, you know, who's going to decide on what's allowed and what's not allowed? It's not going to be the powerless. It's going to be the people who have influence in Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley and so on.
1: Right, right. And you reminded me too that the ACLU of today is succumbing uh, to these illiberal impulses, you know, it's not just ACLU, but many organizations uh, are are succumbing to those same impulses. If we see that happening within our own organizations or our own companies, um, what are some of the things that we can do to bring bring this to light and and to push back against it and to say, no, we're losing ourselves and um we, we understand the impulse but we're fighting against our own
0: uh, our own values I don't know if that's if, if what I'm asking is making sense no I mean I think this is a big question of like how do you argue back against that stuff and how do you argue back back against that stuff in a way that is uh truthful uh and respectful but also forthright yeah right how do you combine uh, being unapologetic and fighting back against this with doing it in an effective way. If it's not going to get you fired, it actually might persuade people, right? right. Um, uh, and I have a few pieces of advice. And the first is that I think you really have to claim the moral high ground. I'm really struck by the fact that a lot of people who argue back against these ideas fall into one of two different kind of uh, pitfalls. One is the people who perhaps come from a more progressive milieu, um, perhaps are in a more progressive institution, and so they're really nervous when they speak up against those ideas because they think, oh my God, you know, I'm somehow on the wrong side here, and 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 I might, you know, they they might be terribly offended. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I'm going to make all of these kind of uh, concessions and and preambles before I even say anything. And then by the time I do actually say something, I already sound guilty, right? I'm <laughs> sounding guilty right now. Um, and the other end of that is the people who are like, wow well, you know what, like. If I tell them my opinion, they're going to hate me anyway. So I may as well act like a jerk, you know, like, like screw these people, you know, yeah. how dare you say what, you know, like you all are idiots, you know, and and, and that's also a way of seeding co- the moral high ground from the start, right? Um. And, and what I will say is that, you know, I thought about these ideas very carefully. I'm I'm an anti-racist. I'm a, I'm a deep, 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 passionate anti-racist. I want to live in a society that's racist. I don't think that Robin DiAngelo and Ira Max Kennedy, the people who've most shaped what we mean by anti-racism in the last couple of years, are in fact, very good anti-racists. I don't think that their conception of this is right. And so I have my values. I have my principles. I believe in the ideas for which I'm arguing. I think we're going to make a better world. And so I'm proud of them. Um, and I'm going to argue for them with that self-confidence. I might be wrong about some things. Everybody's wrong about some things. And I want to keep an open mind. But I'm not going to feel guilty about what I'm arguing for, because I thought about this stuff, I've studied this stuff, and uh, I'm arguing for what I think will is going to make the world a better place. And so I think you know one of the things I want to do with a book is to help people uh, learn the things and do the things they need to have that self same self confidence um, to argue back from this from the moral high ground. Uh, the other things I will say is you know don't fil- vilify those who disagree. Um, you know as I was saying earlier, part of a trap is that there's a lure. Right? A trap if you think about metaphor is something that you know smart and clever people well-intentioned people can fall into and when it ends up being bad for them. Um, and so some of the people who believe in the identity trap um, are, are decent people. Uh, don't don't vilify them um uh, but try to 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 persuade them. And that's related to the fact that uh, today's adversaries can become tomorrow's allies. A lot of the people you should argue with and and argue about, uh, actually, a reasonable middle, right? Uh, the, the, the huge majority of Americans who 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 feel the sting of injustice and want to do something about it, but also do think, hey, some of these ideas and norms that we've adapted in the last few years don't really quite seem right. So, so mostly focus on them. Um, but even some of the true believers can be uh, persuaded, and in fact, some of the most uh, beautiful and influential writers about some of the shortcomings of this ideology, like Ibu Patel, used to really believe right. in some of those ideas. So you're never gonna persuade somebody in this conversation, right? Boom, I make this one brilliant argument and <laughs> suddenly, that's not how change people change their minds, but people do change their minds over time. Um, you know, Another point that is important is that you need to make common cause with other people who are worried about these uh, ideologies, right? So for example, I'm Jewish by origin. I'm not a religious person. But I recognize that Christians have very good reason to oppose these ideas, because if you think that you're created in the image of your maker, um, that, uh, you know, whether somebody is is, is Christian or or Jew or, uh, uh, you know, this group or that group is ultimately less important than the fact that we all have a soul uh, that we've been imbued with by the creator. then any kind of moral outlook that says fundamentally what defines you is the particular group into which you're born should be anathema to your religion. And so I think people who are more secular and people who are more Christian, people actually conservative or, or Marxist, people who are Buddhist or, or, or Jewish can all come to oppose this ideology for for their own reasons. But the important thing here, and that's the last point I'll make on this, is that um you do, in fact, have to have principles of your own, but the danger here is to become a reactionary who says anything that anybody calls woke, I'm I'm going to hate, and I'm not going to have my own principles. I'm going to outsource my judgment. I'll say the opposite of whatever those people over there are saying. You now, then you're just being knee-jerk. Then you're actually allowing your, your 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 opponent to determine what you think. No, whatever it is, but the most deep political and or religious tradition of which you are a part, think about what that tradition tells you to do, how that uh, calls upon you to create a better world and fight for those principles and speak out against the ideas that criticize when your principles are in conflict with it and explain where you're coming from. Um, For me, that is the principles of philosophical liberalism, the ideas of political equality and individual liberty and collective self-determination. I think for many of the listeners, it will be partially that, but it may be partially the Christian faith. It may be partially um, uh, uh, the the secular moral convictions, whatever it is, make sure that you're grounded in and guided by those convictions you have for what a good world would look like.
1: Okay. So this is really important uh, for those who are taking notes. (laughs) So... As you all should be <laughs> <laughs> i might actually put this in the show notes because I, I really think it, it it's worth underscoring one claim the moral high ground two don't vilify those who disagree three remember that today's adversaries can become tomorrow's allies four appeal to the reasonable majority five make common cause with other opponents of the identity synthesis and six don't become a reactionary, um, but you you also bring up the, the this is a the other question another question that that arose for me as I was reading through the book, um, you know as you describe the um, how folks are identifying according to sex, uh, race, gender, and sexual identity, but you don't deal as much with religion as part of the identity synthesis. So as I was wondering. How much of that do you think has to do with the fact that uh, Ryan Burge has done a lot of work on this, that more less and less people are attending church and other religious services. Um, The fact that more people are identifying as nuns, uh, does that leave a vacuum that is filled by the identity trap?
0: Yeah. So let me say two things about this. First of all, why don't, when I say, you know, this new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation, why am I not listing religion as part of that? This is something that um, my book editor asked me actually and pushed me on. Um, And I thought about including religion. I decided not to for a very specific reason, which is that I don't think that this tradition that I'm outlining cares about religion in that way. Um, They sometimes talk about religion when it is when when that category in their mind basically coincides with a disadvantaged racial category so we might talk about you know prejudices against muslims in the united states which obviously do exist and and are a problem um, because they think that most muslims in the united states are non white and so then uh, advocates of uh, identity synthesis become interested in religion not qua religious belief but sort of qua proxy for this sort of form of ethnic belonging. But they don't care very much about religious liberty, for example, right? They don't care about the rights of minority religious uh, traditions. Um, uh, and they have very ambivalent relationships uh, towards Christians, but also, for example, to Jews, because they see Jews as either just being white, which is a mm. complicated claim given the history of migration Yeah, our example, st- our own our so
1: family stories, uh... You know, definitely, you know, I, I, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. My, my family's from Ukraine as well, which is known mm. today as, um, or actually it was then as well, Cherny Ostrov. And, you know, part of my family, it was interesting because different uncles went in different directions. My uncle Sal, who I got to know, was an early, um, very early on as a teenager, early Zionist. Um, one of my uncles was, uh, became part of the Tsar's army. Uh, in World War One, another was uh, active Bolshevik uh, until he wasn't welcomed anymore. Um, so there's any number of strains that this could go. But the um, and I, I heard a similar story. Um, Anne Frank's father described a similar thing, where uh, the concept of whiteness. He was white enough to be to fight for the Tsar in World War One or the Kaiser in Germany uh, in World War One, but he wasn't as we would think of it white enough to. Be saved from the the concentration camps so the 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 concept of whiteness is a really tricky one if you're um if you're from a Jewish family
0: yeah and it goes back to the point we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation that uh you know oddly enough for an ideology that is sort of anti-imperialist or that claims to be sort of uh you know against various forms of discursive hegemony right Um, uh, the identity synthesis is a deeply American tradition that can only conceive of a world in American terms. So the most extreme form of this is that I saw an article about the terrible mistreatment of uh, Uyghurs in in China. Um, uh, And and the headline writer had given it the title, you know, uh, white supremacy in China, (laughs) which is absurd, right? Because (laughs) Because we wouldn't think of people who are Han, which is the majority ethnic group in, in in China, as white. But they could only conceive of a world in terms of, you know, there's whites and non-whites, and the whites are the oppressors, and 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 so on. It's like a group um,
1: narcissism it, in a way,
0: that we can't see beyond our own, you know, our own our own categories of what right. determines groups, right? But of yeah. course, you know, in in in, in uh, in in the third Reich, there was anti black racism uh, as well, but 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 the, the fundamental category was Aryan versus non Aryan, and that's a category that splits what, what today in the United States would be seen as white different white groups uh, uh, apart from each other, right? So uh, so we have to uh, recognize these multiplicities of of how we can sort of think of each other, and so um, anyway, so, so so that's sort of on the religion point. That's why I don't think that religion is key to how the advocates of this ideology uh, uh, conceptualize the, the conceptual terrain. But the question you're asking is partially a different one, which is, um, is this a kind of esatz religion? Is this a substitute for religion in certain kinds of ways? Is it because of the secularization right. yeah. of the United States that these ideas have so much appeal? Um, now, John McWurter, who I respect a lot, Has argued that it's literally a religion, um, that that actually sort of what he calls wokeness is really just you know the the work of the elect um, in in sort of similar forms to Puritan ideology and and it's a form you know it's a religious catechism and so on. I disagree with that. I think that what he's uh, picking up on is a certain kind of quasi-religious fervor, which was also true of many other. Political traditions, which is true of many nationalists, which is true of certain Marxists and, and, and so on and so forth. So I don't think it's literally a religion. I do think that um, it, you know, that America's moral imaginary has been deeply shaped by Puritanism. Yeah. And that that is true on parts of the right and in parts of more conservative or religious uh, uh circles, but that's also really true. In a lot of left-wing and progressive circles, that have completely rejected the sort of super sort of the the, the commandments of Puritanism, right? They don't right. worry about sex before marriage or whatever stuff yeah. like that. They're fine with that, but the idea that our community must be morally pure, right, right, and that if there's some member of our community that's not morally pure, it's going to lead us astray, and the devil is among us, and we got to make sure to expel them right and this is all ultimately the, the most important thing is our internal goodness and displaying and preserving our external goodness and that's in some ways more important than the outcomes right what really matters is that we are acting morally um that I think uh, has something to do with 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 this tradition and so you know um uh, the identity synthesis is already proving to be really fecund around the world, you, you're seeing offshoots of it spring up in lots of different countries. But my prediction, which we might be able to test in 10 or so years, is that within Europe, for example, Protestant countries like the Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands uh, are likely to embrace wokeness more than Catholic countries like Italy or Spain. Um, because I think that moral that, that particular form of moral fervor and the particular form of purifying your community more naturally comes to uh, uh, uh a certain form of protestantism than Pentecostalism.
1: oh that's interesting i hadn't even thought of that that um different uh different denominations uh and the cultures that have um evolved in those denominations might the the soil might be better soil for wokeism or uh, it, you know the identity trap the identity synthesis. Um, I do need to ask you though, I touched on this a little earlier and and so did you. In interviews after the release of that, um, your, your it was your 2022 book, The Great Experiment, uh, which by the way, I'd also recommend, we got a lot of reading to do, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. You said you actually have reason to be optimistic. So are you still optimistic? And if so, uh, are you optimistic for the same reasons?
0: I am cautiously optimistic. So, okay. <laughs> w- 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 what I've been saying is that you know when I look at cable news, when I look at MSNBC or, or, or Fox News, I'm really worried about the country. When I look at um, Washington DC and 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 some of the uh, you know the strength that something like Donald Trump continues to have in the polls, um, uh, the command he still has of the Republican Party, I'm I'm very concerned. When I look at, uh, uh, in the context of my last book, The Great Experiment, specifically the state of our diverse democracies, how people, how members of different ethnic and cultural groups are getting along, um, and how that compares to 100 or 50 or 20 years ago, I'm actually quite optimistic. Um, uh, One striking stat is that in the 1960s, uh, 95% of Americans thought that interracial marriage was immoral. Uh, Today, less than 5%. I mm-hmm. think it's immoral. And we know that's a real change in in behavior um, because the number of uh, mixed race children has actually gone up very significantly in the last decades. That's just one big headline finding. There's lots right. of other, right? Um, but when I look at what society actually looks like, how people live, whether they have friends and neighbors from different groups, with whom they get along, um, there's much work to be done. But 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 I am optimistic. I think we have made real progress. Um So am I optimistic about our ability to stand up against these twin dangers of far-right populism, but also these sort of deeply identitarian ideas on the left? I think it's going to take a very long time. I think both of these uh, phenomena are going to stay with us for the next 20 or 30 years. And, And that's why it's important to read up on this topic and to understand this topic, to actually do the intellectual work in a way that I think collectively we really haven't done over the last years, because this debate is going to be with us for a good number of years to come. But I do also think that most Americans are instinctively, uh, philosophically liberal, um, even if they don't know it, even if they might not call themselves that, even if they might not be able to define what I mean by philosophical liberalism or what they mean by philosophical liberalism. Um, And and, and what I mean by that is that the idea, for example, that you should allow somebody to speak, even if you really hate what they're saying, that's not a natural idea. It's, it's, it's sort of hard to maintain. And every sometimes, like, oh, just shut that person up. That's right. so nasty. Just just get rid of them, right? But when people are treated in unfair ways, uh, when people are hounded out of their jobs in arbitrary ways... Uh, when we are putting limits on the ways in which we can engage with each other culturally, the ways in which we can inspire each other culturally, as we increasingly are in the context of cultural, so-called cultural appropriation, um, I think that people actually feel the injustice of that in their bones. There's something about the values and the societies in which we want to live, where we're saying that's not what I want. I don't want that kind of society, and right. that. Reasonableness goes pretty deep, actually. So there's a great study uh, about uh, American history and attitudes to American history, right? And at the moment, if you listen to Democrats or Republicans, or you listen to, uh, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote "woke left" or the you know "maga right," they have these really, really polarized ideas about America. It's either 1619 or 1776. Right. right? Either um, America is, you know, defined by slavery. Or we should talk about it as little as possible. A, a great majority of Americans reject those views. A great majority of Americans, including uh, most Democrats, yeah, think that you know George Washington uh, and other founders were great people who are worthy of uh, deep respect. Um, that uh, there's many wonderful things about the United States we should be proud of. Uh, Constitution. Republicans often think that Democrats don't think that, but Democrats do think that <laughs> by the same by the same token, great majorities of Americans think that school children should be taught about the evils of slavery, that uh, they should be taught about the civil rights movement and that Martin Luther King and and Rosa Parks were heroes. And again, Democrats think Republicans don't think that but the major- majorities of Republicans do in fact think that according to those polls um and we could talk about many other political issues as well, including really complicated ones like, Uh, uh, questions around trans people and uh, abortion and so on. I think on many of those issues, you actually have reasonable majorities of Americans in ways that are rarely reflected in the political debate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We talked to Todd Rose a couple months ago and his, um, his latest work, collective illusions and I'm oversimplifying a great deal. Uh, It's a, it's a great book, but ultimately what he was saying was we're not, a vast majority of us aren't nearly as divided as we think we're divided, you know. So that's kind of what you're touching on. Now, your book is is really terrific, and, and is just such a bullseye for the work that we're trying to do here. You know, we went through the uh, as we described the six pieces of advice for arguing and organizing against the identity trap, and then there's also a, a compliment to that that you you expound on that one for organizations, institutions, and companies. I want to bring this home uh, for, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to how help me survive Thanksgiving dinner, (laughs) you know? Um, So I call it the TP&R question. What do you think each of us can do to be better able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across these differences, people who think differently than we do? who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news, as you just said, from different sources than we do, how can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, or is it even possible?
0: Well, first of all, um, you know, I really had two goals with this book, right? One is to uh, improve the arguments that people who already worry about these ideas make. Um, You know, I think a lot of people have become worried about the identity trap. uh, but there haven't been a lot of really good books about this. I don't think there's been a book that's, that's 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 approachable and comprehensive in the way that my book is. And so as a result, a lot of these arguments are bad and knee-jerk. It's like, oh, this is woke, this is terrible, right?
1: And by the and way, so- one of the, one of the things that's remarkable about your book that I really really appreciated is that you articulate um, arguments that you disagree with, but you give them fair. You articulate them in a fair way. In other words, it, it's the, the the mindset that you start out with is let me see if I understand this correctly, and you give it a fair hearing before you then start to critique it in a constructive way. So that um, I, I just wanted to point that out that that's one of the things. Thank I really you. Appreciate. Yeah,
0: I mean that, that that's really meaningful to me. It's something I aim for. I mean, one way are doing putting this uh, there's this great term that that's not as well known as it should be. So so people might have heard of a Turing test, which is roughly speaking whether a machine can pass as human. Um, there's also a the great term of ideological turing test right can somebody who is conservative you know explain an argument that a liberal person might make in such a way that the liberal person would say yes that's my argument mm-hmm. right and, and and vice versa and i think in america collectively we continually fail the ideological Turing test in in basic ways. When somebody argues for a position we don't like, we you know we say, well, why do they think that? Well, because I'm evil and I want to do evil things. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not how people talk about themselves, right? <laughs> um, so, so I hope that my book passes the ideological Turing test, but it presents these ideas in the way that the strongest advocates of these ideas would, would 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 present them, and then I argue with them and I explain why I'm not convinced by them, why I think that. Um, uh, They're mistaken. We have good responses to them, but 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 that's really my ambition to give people the tools to argue against these ideas in a profound way that's 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 guided by principles rather than that's knee-jerk. But then the other aim I really have is to help people have those conversations. Um, you know, there's a second group that feels really torn that says, "Hey, I I recognize that there's many injustices in America and that there are really." Bad things that have happened in our history, and bad things that still happen today. And so, when people say I am the person who, in the most maximalist way, is going to fight against this, that's really tempting, right? And at the same time, I wonder, um, perhaps it's not just that we're going too far; they are really actually fighting for the wrong thing. You know, perhaps you know, separating kids by race at the age of six is not going too far in the right direction. Perhaps it's actually going in the wrong direction. And so, I have this discomfort with this, and I, I feel torn. And and the book is also supposed to be. For them. So one thing that you might do, and I know this is self-promotional, I'm an <laughs> you, is give this book to your sister or to your brother-in-law who's more tempted by these ideas, perhaps. Right. And sit down together and have a conversation on the basis of something you've read that, that you can agree or disagree with, but that gives you a text to grapple with together in a in a corporate way. Do a book club in which you really think about these ideas uh together through this book and other books, right? Um, but you know. Let's say you haven't done that, and you're sitting at a Thanksgiving table. Uh, look, it depends on personalities, right? Uh, some people are, are are reasonable, and it's worth talking to them and and engaging with them. And some people who you might love, who might be great people in other ways, are unreasonable about politics <laughs> and topics yeah. like that. And it probably is best to, to 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 just let it slide and avoid politics at the at the table. But if you do talk about politics, then 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 go back to the maxims we're talking about claim the moral high ground, explain that you're arguing for what you're arguing because you really believe in these ideas, but also have charity towards the person you're speaking with. Recognize that they are arguing for their positions because they want to make the world a better place as well. And then you know, try to pass the ideological Turing test, realize that they're not arguing for what they want because they're evil people. I don't think the people who, um, whose ideas are criticized in this book are evil people. Uh, some of them are, there was always in every group, some evil people. But most of them are genuinely convinced it's going to make the world a better place. So, so come from that place of of of, of grace and of, um, uh, 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 you know, giving people the benefit of a doubt, um, and and that's how I think you can be firm, but but thoughtful, right? You can you can be unapologetic, but respectful.
1: Yeah. Now, just this is a totally ignorant question, but the ideological Turing test—how how do you
0: spell that, that that word? Just so I can. So Turing is T-U-R-I-N-G, and T-U-R-I-N-G. I believe it's Alan... Okay, and I believe it's a concept that Alan Turing came up. Ah, after, so okay. That's why
1: it's called the Turing test. Okay. All right. So one of my last questions is whether you have—do
0: you have any questions for me? Well, how do you think that uh, religion? does play into this and what 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 is uh the how do you think uh religious people should grapple with these ideas in particular considering that they will be both motivated by fighting against injustices right uh because of compassion and the and the duty to look after your neighbor the duty to look after people who are in a weak positions and, and, and I think do have a kind of universalism in build that, that, wants to focus on, you know, our soul is the most important unit of analysis rather than the group to which we belong.
1: So I, I'm, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but I think you're asking two different questions. One is more dealing with religion uh, and religious communities. One is more of a theological question and they're related, uh, but I think they're two separate questions. So theologically um i would think that that starts with our own c.s. lewis i think referred to it as the the numinous the the sense of transcendence right uh, that there's something beyond me there's something beyond what we can see materially right um and and if we have a sense of that there's a sense of that that get, that helps me tap into the universal right um, the other part of that is my religious community. And frankly, I've been I've been really ambivalent about my own religious. I grew up in an observant. We went to an Orthodox synagogue, but I became a Christian when I was 28 or 29. Um, and I've been very ambivalent because a lot of folks I go to church with, they, if Jesus walked into our Bible study, they'd say, get out of here, you hippie. You know, they they wouldn't recognize him or what he's teaching on. So I've been a very ambivalent, but um, ideally that religious community has to grapple with how, how we live together better and how we welcome our neighbors in a more loving, uh, loving charitable, uh, lovingly charitable way. Um, how do we overcome our selfish impulses uh, to do these things like what you're talking about with uh, with uh, classical liberalism, collective self determination, individual freedom, political equality—these things don't necessarily come uh, naturally. Collectively, they come naturally for me to fight for myself, but not in the collective. So the religious, I think, um, is is practice. You know, each each week we go and practice these uh, these virtues uh, in in a community. Um, so. I'd have to think a lot about that, more about that, but um, that's that that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. That's that's where my head goes.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's always the tension between the the ideal and the practice, and it feels yeah. to me. I guess I was asking, I I, I I took myself to be asking the theological question, but you're right to take it to a community question because you know what what the theological answer is. Uh, is one thing. And I think that answer is quite clear. What that looks like in practice is another answer. And, and that, by the way, is one of the defenses of liberalism. But some of the critics of liberalism always say, but look, you're not living up to your values. And no society in the history of the world has ever fully lived up to its values. The question is whether an ideology uh, uh, allows countries to be better by trying to lick up to those values and gives people the tools to criticize ways in which a society is not living up to its values. And, and, and if we go back to the fundamental disagreement here, it's that some people say, hey, there's these ways in which we're not living up to our values, so the values must be terrible. But that's gonna be true of any set of values. I think what makes liberalism unique and appealing is that A, the attempt to live up to our values has allowed us to make tremendous progress. Yeah. And B, that we have, we preserve the tools for people to make those critiques. Um, but hopefully, those critiques are going to be constructive, pushing us towards living up to the ideals, not ripping them up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, my oldest kid lives up in Humboldt, California, and um, they're participating in what some might think of as religious uh, practices or religious community. Um, I, I don't necessarily think of it that way. I, I was curious to learn about their community and some of the rituals they participate in. Um, So Savannah welcomed me and Lisa into uh, a few things, and it was tea. It was so beautiful. It's the the simple uh, ritual. A ritual is almost uh, too intense, but the practice of making tea and pouring tea for a small circle of friends. It was, to me, it was just, it was, could seem mundane in a way, but it was really profound and and beautiful in other ways. Pouring tea for for each other and you know being together, there is something really profound about that.
0: You, you know you're 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 fueling one of the few material ambitions I have in life, and that's uh, to have a great cocktail bar at home and to have a great tea bar at home. I think those are the two two things one should have at home.
1: <laughs> good whiskey, and good tea. I love it. That's a good start. So before we go, how can folks follow, follow you, find The Identity Trap, your other writing at The Atlantic and Persuasion and all of the great work that you're doing?
0: So please do read the, the Identity Trap. I really feel like I've done a tour of duty here. I I did a lot of work to understand these ideas and to explain them and to hopefully improve our discourse and empower people to argue against those ideas where we disagree with them. So I would be really grateful if you if you... Read the book and recommend it to your friends and perhaps gift it to that uh, sister or to that brother-in-law. Um, uh, please subscribe to my podcast, The Good Fight. Good subscribe fight. to my magazine, The Persuasion, at persuasion.community, which is trying to stand up for the philosophically liberal tradition against threats from the extremes. Um, uh, and there will be plenty. So
1: persuasion.community is, how, is the okay um persuasion.community and the good fight podcast really great conversations uh I, I feel like I'm working out it's like an intellectual uh th- philosophical workout when I listen I, I, I love it absolutely love it um so this was really terrific yasha I hope it's not the last time I, I I'm very happy to come back on this is really fun yeah a ton of fun thanks so much and uh now you're based uh in the in the DC area right or or Maryland I'm based in 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 Baltimore, New York at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So, tea and whiskey on me next time. In uh, we're we're in the same uh, zip code. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about TPNR. Talk of politics and religion without killing each other. Seriously, taking the time to write a review does make a difference. And telling a friend about uh, talk of politics and religion without killing each other particular episode, what we're trying to do overall, it might end up spurring you into a great conversation. Uh, and you could be talking politics and religion without killing each other. So um, I'm easy to find too. Cory S. Nathan, at C-O-R-E-Y-S is in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week.